This week, the title of our sermon is Accept in the Cross of Our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll have probably about another two or three sermons in the book of Galatians. Uh, those of you who have been here for a few years know we've been here a long time. We're turning again this week to Galatians, the final chapter, chapter 6. And we're going to be studying again verses 11 to 18, the final few verses of the book of Galatians. So let us uh, open our Bibles, look up on the wall, let us read together the Word of God. Again, I'm reading Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. See what with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. A few weeks ago, when we last studied these final few verses of the book of Galatians, we saw how God spoke through the Apostle Paul, calling attention to the character, not the arguments, but the character of the Judaizers. Now, a word for those of you who have not been here uh, the last couple of years as we've gone through Galatians, I use the word Judaizers to refer to those who were teaching in the Galatian church, in the church in Galatia among the Christians, they were teaching the Gentiles who had come into the church that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, in order to truly fit, to truly belong, to really be members. We can call them the circumcision party. We can call them the Judaizers because they were making everybody Jewish. We studied a couple of weeks ago how God spoke through the Apostle Paul, calling attention to the character, not to the arguments of the Judaizers here. How the Apostle Paul, as he was leading, rolled up his sleeves and he got down and dirty with the opponents of the gospel. He showed how their promotion of circumcision and their promotion of the law was not simply an error that flowed from an improper head understanding of Scripture, but that it was an error that flowed from the sin that owned their hearts. The Judaizers were corrupt in their character, the Apostle Paul said, and out of their corrupt character flowed their corrupt doctrine. And out of their corrupt doctrine came the corruption of the church. Here is what the Apostle Paul had to say about these men's character. He said, those, meaning the Judaizers, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those, again, the Judaizers who are circumcised, do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. So he's making four statements about their character. Number one, that the Judaizers were trying to make a good showing in the flesh, verse 12. In other words, they were man-pleasers. They were not God-pleasers. They were men trying to make themselves look good to everyone who was watching. Now, none of you know what that's about, do you? You never ever think about what anybody else is thinking about you, do you? You don't dress that way for that reason. You don't fix your hair for any reason. You don't use the vocabulary you use for any reason. None of us really could care less about what people think of us, right? Well, here he's saying that their false doctrine starts because what? They want people to like them. Number two, the circumcision party was trying 
to avoid persecution for the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 12 again, so that they will not be persecuted. They were unwilling to suffer the opposition of men, the loss of jobs, the loss of families, the loss of reputation, or the loss of life itself for the sake of Jesus Christ. None of us, again, know anything about that, do we? We've never had a choice where we've chosen our own family, our own financial position, our own reputation, maybe even our lives. We've never made a choice for physical or or for safety, have we? Well, of course we have. Paul says this again is the substance, the origin, the heart, the source of their false teaching. They did not want to be persecuted. They were unwilling to suffer the opposition of men. Third, the Apostle Paul said that the men of the circumcision party were hypocrites. By demanding that the Gentile believers get circumcised, they were demanding that the Gentiles obey the law, and yet they didn't even keep the law themselves, he said. And fourth, the men of the circumcision party, the Judaizers, were demanding that Gentile believers get circumcised so that they could boast in the Gentile believers' flesh. In this scheme, the Gentiles who got circumcised became trophies that these men could claim for themselves and for their leadership. Number one, they were trying to make a good showing to look good to other people. Number two, they were unwilling to suffer opposition. They were unwilling to be persecuted. Number three, they were hypocrites because while telling others to keep the law, they didn't keep the law themselves. And number four, they wanted to boast in their disciples. They wanted to be able to parade them and to say, look, these people are following me. So here at the end of his letter, the Apostle Paul gives himself to a relentless attack on the men and not the doctrine of the false shepherds of Galatia. He attacks their character. He is engaging in an ad hominem attack. These men say you have to be circumcised. Well, look at their man-pleasing ways. Look at how they avoid any persecution. Look at how they're unwilling to give up anything for the gospel. They're hypocrites. They tell you to keep the law, but they don't even keep it to themselves. They brag about the flesh of their converts. They boast about their converts and not Jesus Christ. Clearly, what Paul is saying is all about character and motive. It's not about logic here. The Apostle Paul ends his letter to the Galatians by warning the Galatian believers of the evil motives of the men of the circumcision party. Now, come on, stop, think, be honest with me. If somebody were to do this to you in an argument, or even to do this about someone else while talking to you, what would you say to them? Well, we've all been trained well. Immediately we'd say to them, wait a second, you're talking about their hearts, and you don't know their hearts. How can you know what's in their hearts? You're saying that they want to look good to other men. Don't you want to look good to other men? You're saying they want to avoid persecution? How do you know that? You don't know that they want to avoid persecution. Stick, stick to the point. You know, don't get off on this sidetrack about what they're like. You know, you don't know that. Be humble. Admit it. You don't know their hearts. How can you know their hearts? And yet, the Apostle Paul is at the heart here dealing with their motives. He's motives, motives. Look at their motives. Look at their motives. And you know, motives do matter. They matter a lot. They matter in other spheres of life. For instance, the question of motive is central in every murder trial. And there's a truism that's repeated that there are only three motives for murder. There's money and there's love and there's revenge. But with these men of the circumcision party, there's only one motive. And what is the motive? Well, look at the end of verse 13. You'll see what their motive was. It says, they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. They want you as a trophy. Now, 
Is there anything like that in our lives today? Is there anything like that in the United States today? Is there any boasting in people as trophies that's undercutting the gospel of Jesus Christ? Any? Anybody ever talk about numbers in America? A few years ago I was preaching and I made the statement about Trinity Broadcasting Network that, uh, that it was filled with heretics. That it was absolute poison and that people should not walk with it. And afterwards, there was a man who had been a part of this church for probably at that time about 11 years. And he came to me that week and he was livid. And he told me how there were a number of preachers on Trinity Broadcasting Network that are godly and that are biblical. And he started ticking them off. You know, D. James Kennedy, and he went on. I don't remember. I don't know who's on it today, so I don't want to keep naming names. But I'm sure, well, until he had his heart attack last week, uh, uh so maybe he won't be on anymore. But Kennedy has been on Trinity Broadcasting Network. And there are other men who are preachers of the gospel on Trinity Broadcasting Network. But come on. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You sit there and you look at the sets and the designs they have surrounded themselves with. You look at the furniture that's painted gold. You look at the big hair. You look at all the sophistication that they claim for themselves. And then you hear them inevitably come to the point where they're milking you for your money and telling you that you'll get better, that your cancer will disappear, that your eyes will see better, that, that all your relationships will be healed if you just simply, by faith, send in money because God will honor your seed faith. Isn't matter of fact, you'll get rich. And now we come back into the book of Galatians and we see where the Apostle Paul is saying what? Well, the Apostle Paul is saying that these men want to boast in your flesh. When I was at seminary one time, a man came to give a seminar and they put out a brochure, the seminary. And in the brochure, it listed all this man's accomplishments. And I was used to this. I knew that if I wanted to be an important man, that I needed to have an important church. In Presbyterian circles, we call it a tall steeple church. And that means a church that's downtown, not second, but first. And there are some cities where first is actually fourth. Presbyterian, like Memphis, you know. But nevertheless, a tall steeple church, preferably with Gothic architecture, and preferably with a salary of at least 160000 for the senior pastor. A friend of mine, that's what he earned at his tall steeple church. And the Apostle Paul says about the Judaizers that they want to boast in their flesh. Where do you minister? Oh, well, I minister at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Memphis. Oh, do you? Really? I'm in Augusta, Georgia. I'm at Redeemer in <clears throat> Manhattan. <clears throat> and how many do you run? Well, we're running about, you know, 25 or so. No. Nobody would ever say that. If you had 25, you'd lie. You'd say, well, you know, a little under 100. <laughs> Nobody would ever admit to running 25. I, I run about, what does Rick Warren run? Can't remember. It's 10, 20, 30,000, 50,000, 2 million, I think. Nobody boasts in the flesh. Nobody boasts in the bodies. Nobody boasts in how many they run today, right? Well, all right, they do. But, you know, you have to accept it. It's a marketing economy. It's capitalism. Uh, how else are we going to judge the wisdom of the man in the pulpit unless we count the numbers in the pews? Is that how it worked with Moses? Well, no, but, I mean, that was an unusual time. 
there were special sacrifices that Jews had to make to be with Moses in the wilderness. I mean, they had to wander and they had to ask for their water from rocks. You know, God was teaching them a special thing. But in America today, uh, generally, it's it's opposite from the way it's always been in church history. Generally, today, uh, you should rejoice when all men speak well of you. I mean, it's a wonderful time we live in, this Christian nation, isn't it? You know, because we can be successful and there can be 10,000 of us and we're all right. And as a matter of fact, one of the largest networks of radio stations in the country is the Salem Broadcasting Network. And, and do you know, I know Ed Atzinger and, and, and I know, um, what's his name? Uh, um, and do you know, they give a lot of money to the Christian, to the, to, to the work of Christ in this country. And uh, you shouldn't be critical of men like that. Well, I'm not being critical of Ed Atzinger and the guys at Salem Broadcasting. I've gone to their office and asked them for money and they've given it. All right? My point isn't to say that Salem Broadcasting Network is evil because it boasts of its flesh. My point is to say that boasting in numbers and bodies and flesh is at the heart of the church in the United States of America. And if anybody thinks that they have trouble understanding what the Apostle Paul is saying here, either you're not alive, or you're deaf, dumb, and blind, or you're completely dishonest. Every single conference that I get a mailer from is all about the budgets and the number of people that are run by the main speakers at the conference. And every book you buy that supposedly will lead you to the path of holiness is going to tell you how many other Christians are on that same path to holiness. I mean, do you understand this? What is that? You say it's on the Christian bestseller list. What is that? That's boasting in your flesh. They desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. You say, well, nobody's going around the church today saying people should be circumcised. And I say, yeah, generally, you're right. But what are the things that we're willing... You know, back... I wish I had a coin. Does somebody have a coin? Throw me a coin. Quickly. Anybody. Just throw one. Go ahead. Okay, here's a coin. I thought I'd get a penny, but it's a quarter. You see this coin? Did you know, by the way, I think it's nickels. Is it nickels or is it pennies today that are worth more as a metal than they are as currency? Which one is it? It's the penny. Both. Thank you. This is a man that worked with metal all his life. That's right. Okay, here's a quarter. It's not worth as much as a metal as it is as currency. But in the old days, you know what they used to do? They used to have the value of the coin as coin, as metal, and the value that it had as you made a transaction with it be the same thing. So you know what people would do? People would take the coin and they'd trim it. It still had the same image on the front, it still had essentially the same proportion. You trim enough coins, what do you have? Well, <laughs> when I give this coin to you, you have a little less than you thought you had. And slowly but surely, I have a little cache of precious metal that has been ripped off from all the people I've had transactions with. And the person that did that was called what? They were called a trimmer. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is he's saying these people are trimming the gospel so that they can get richer, so that they can have a better reputation, so that they can have more scalps, more foreskins. These people are all about avoiding persecution 
and looking good to other people, their motives are corrupt. They're trimming. They're not honest. They're not giving you full bore the Gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross has been left behind. Thank you. They desire, verse 13, to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Now, you all understand that and you all know that in America today there are many truths of Scripture which are being trimmed so that churches will be larger. Come on, guys. And you all know very well what truths we could trim at this church so that we wouldn't have to worry about our budget at the end of the year. You all know it's a non-starter to be patriarchal today. You say, do you really have to use that word? Okay, fine. Father rule. Well, I mean, even that's kind of gnarly. You know, do you have to use that word? Okay, not patriarchal, not father rule. Uh, Husband, the head of the home. Well, I mean, do you really have to use the word head? Can't you talk about uh, sort of, you know, sourceship? <laughs> well, that's what Gordon Fee and all his all his followers say the word means. Kefale, source, not authority. Source, 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 source. You know, the main Oxford lexicon says they're wrong, but does that stop them? No, all the evangelical publishers continue to say it. Does kephale mean source? No, it means head. And it's authority it's talking about. In other words, look, people, take the issue of sexuality. Think of how much better it would be to go to a church where people would talk about... I, there's some guy on the internet. I don't know who he is. He must read my blog. He sends me these emails, and they go on and on and on about how homosexuality is inherited, it's a function of biology, it's a function of genetics, that nobody has made the choice, and that it's not sin. And so I got another ream of articles this week, all scientific, about how homosexuality, sodomy is not really a sin. It's, it's a genetic issue. And the sheep will tell you that because they say that, you know, 20% of rams mate with themselves instead of, you know, and, and that proves that, you know. So we could trim the issue of sexual... Purity from the church. We could not talk to our children when they're interested in somebody else. This week we had a birthday party. A, a few of us were in, invited to a birthday party where a young man talked about his, his uh, now father-in-law. The first time he asked the man for permission to date his daughter, they had a wonderful conversation. He was scared out of his wits to have the meeting, but at the end of it... Uh, this man turned to him after a fairly nice meeting, given what he had expected it to be, and this man said to him, now listen to me. If you ever hurt my daughter, and if you ever do anything against the principles that you and I have discussed and agreed to here, I want you to know that I have a lot of land. And the young man said, he sat there wondering, land? What does that have to do with anything? And then the man said, and I have a shovel. <laughs> and then the man said, and they will never find you. <laughs> now, you may do it in a different way, but you know what was being communicated that day. That man was not a trimmer when it came to the virtue and the honor of his daughter, was he? He was letting that man know that he took it intensely personally. We could trim sexual purity. We could trim patriarchy. We could also trim preaching as though we had enemies and not simply friends. 
We could preach about the problems in Washington and the problems in Hollywood and the problems with the Armenians. We could preach up a storm as long as it was never addressed to us and the church would grow. All men would speak well of us, except the pagans. But who cares about them? They're secularists anyhow, and they believe in evolution. So that shows you where they're at. And the Apostle Paul says what? They desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. And you think, well, you know, circumcision was a big deal. Oh, come on. Can't you... Please, would you have some self-critical capacity and some awareness of, of how devious your heart is? Because that's the start of faith in Christ. Let me tell you how I would have taken it had I been in the church in Galatia. Okay? I, I spent a long time writing this, so be patient with me. But if I'd been in the church in Galatia and I'd listened to Paul and seen what he wrote, this is how I'd react. Okay? All right, listen. We all know what this is about. Um, Really, the Apostle Paul, uh, we all know that the church, now mind you, I'm jumping back into that time, that place, all right? We all know that, 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 the church at this time uh, is, is, is in a very untenable position and there is an awful lot of danger. Um, we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not finding favor among the hardline Jews. We know that it was the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, who killed Jesus. We know that our new faith is based on Jesus. Nobody's predisposed to love us. Nobody's predisposed to believe that God took on flesh. I know that Isaiah 53 and other things in the Old Testament show us that the suffering servant would come, that he would be a man of sorrows. But it is scandalous. I mean, it's not as if our nation has not had a lot of suffering recently. And, and now we're telling them that, that they need to understand that this one they killed. I mean, you know how in the book of Acts it's constantly said, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. I mean, this is hard. If people are going to become Christians, they're going to have to be given a little grace. You know, you can't just jump from having killed him to worshiping him as the king of the universe. We need to be sensitive to the position that Jesus has left these, these men in. After all, they were defending the true faith, the Jewish faith. It's hard to be a Christian today. This new gospel of Jesus Christ is not finding favor among the hardline Jews, the scribes and Pharisees. They say that Jesus' followers, the Christians, have turned away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in their jealousy and hatred, the Pharisees and their followers are persecuting the Christians. Some are even putting men to death. It's hard to be a Christian already. Some have been put out of the synagogue. Some have been expelled from their homes. Some divorced by their husbands. It's such a tragedy. And some have even been killed. Why? Because the Pharisees say that we are forsaking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that we're turning our backs on the law and prophets and that we're no longer Jews. So now along comes the Apostle Paul You know, he used to be the strictest among the strict. He was a Pharisee. He was a student of Gamaliel. He held the cloaks, guarded the cloaks when they stoned Stephen to death. The same Paul. Now what? Now he comes along and he teaches that God is doing a new thing, that God has now incorporated the despised and the dirty Gentiles among his covenant people. Paul claims that there's a wideness in God's mercy, that God has now brought near those who formerly were far away, that God now has thrown the gate of his salvation wide, and that all nations are invited to his feast, that they're even seated at his table. This is a hard truth. 
All these years, God telling us to be separate, telling us not to marry them, telling us not to eat with them, telling us that we're to observe all the dietary laws. Think of all that God made us do. Come on, people. This Paul's telling you not to be circumcised. You know this is only going to inflame the Pharisees more and our persecution is going to intensify. Can't Paul see the danger? Cannot he moderate his tone? Must he always choose the path of greatest resistance? Must he always be so intemperate in his preaching and teaching? Must it always be his way or the highway? We're not asking much. No one's saying that the Gentiles can't be in the church that they have to stand outside looking in, in through the windows, that they have to keep it at distance. We know that the Pharisees are wrong. God is doing a new thing. In Christ, those who were formerly not God's people are now the people of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We make no bones about that. We know it's true. But still, Paul should be reasonable about this and realize that a little bit of compromise goes a long way toward calming the waters. After all, it's God Himself who commanded circumcision. He said that all Abraham's descendants were to be circumcised. You think about it. If the Gentiles are now to be incorporated among God's covenant people, then they should enter the way we all entered, which was through circumcision. Paul says our new faith is the faith of our fathers. The faith our fathers look forward to. He admits that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses are no longer our fathers only, but also the Gentile believers' fathers. If so, the Gentiles should be marked by circumcision. Doesn't Paul see? This is going to appease the Pharisees. On the other hand, doesn't he see how telling the Gentiles they don't have to be circumcised, it's only going to pour fuel on the fire. It's going to only inflame things. If Paul himself doesn't want to die, that's fine. He doesn't have to take us with him. We have to understand, the Pharisees are accusing us of being against the Jewish faith and law and of turning away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. They're accusing us of turning away from the law. and pro They're accusing us of being lawless. What a reputation for a new religion to have. Anarchy, lawlessness. We have to show them this is not so. Jesus did not come to abrogate the law, but to fulfill it. He Himself said it in the Sermon on the Mount. We have to show them the Gentiles are not simply accepted in their filth and sin, but that they're cleansed as we and our fathers before us were cleansed by entering into the Jewish family, by being made new through circumcision. Look, it won't go well with us if we walk the path Paul is so headstrong in going down. If he wants, he can die. But he's wrong. Jesus didn't come to throw out the faith of our nation, of our people, of our fathers. He came to complete it. And you who are Gentiles, you need to show just a little respect for the people of God and demonstrate that you too honor Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the law. You must be circumcised. God's ways have not changed. They've only filled out more. If you're going to be included among His people now, that's fine. But you must be circumcised. Yeah, circumcision is painful. When you're a man instead of an eight-day-old boy. <laughs> yeah, you'll remember it. But really, that's good. It shows meekness and humility as you enter the Jewish nation and take on the yoke of the Jewish law. Remember, this is your hope. This is your salvation now. This is your joy. And so it went. And if you think about it, brothers and sisters, it really wasn't much that the circumcision party was asking. A wee bit here and a wee bit there and a little bit of trimming. They were only asking Paul to be reasonable and not to force everyone to walk his own path of martyrdom. In some ways, it seemed right to them. Paul would have a special call. After all, he, you know, he was, he was, you know, he was that kind of man, you know. I mean, remember, he was the one that was holding the cloaks, you know? I mean, let's face it, Paul's been bodaciously wrong before. 
And so if God calls him to martyrdom, it, it's kind of fitting, isn't it? But that doesn't mean I have a call to martyrdom. I wasn't out there stoning Stephen. That man, Paul, you know that he is a proud man. He is a proud man. Look at him. Watch him. Watch him. Everyone can see it clearly. Look at how intransigent he is in the positions that he takes. He's so rigid. He's so dogmatic. He's so arrogant. And he never lets up. He's like a pit bull. Gets his jaws on something. The Apostle Paul never lets go. Never. You know, that is not the way that God works. God doesn't take men out into the wilderness for a special revelation that they themselves receive. If this new deal were of God, Paul wouldn't be so unilateral about it. He'd respect us and he'd listen to our understanding of the law and the prophets. And while we're at it, may we point out that his attitude towards us isn't right at all. Did you see what he said about us in that letter? I mean, did you see it? You know, his attitude towards other believers is, is not very good, really. I mean, did you see what he wrote about us there? Did you? Did you? Did you see it? Look at what he says there. He, at the beginning of the letter, he anathematizes us. He curses us. And then he makes fun of us and he mocks us. He even ridicules us. I wish they'd just go ahead and cut it all off. It's not, it's not very Christian of him. And then look at the end there. He's not arguing against the exegetical and Herman, hermeneutical points that we <clears throat> have made. What has he done? Well, he's gone ad hominem. It's all about him and us. He's lily white and he has pure motives and we have bad ones. Look what he's put down on the parchment there. See for yourself whether this is a man of God. You really, really, people, there's no humility there with this man. He's an arrogant man. It's always his way or the highway. There's no mutuality to this man. We thought one sign of the work of God in a man's heart that one fruit of the Spirit was considering others better than yourselves. Do these look like the words of a man that thinks anybody is better than him? You know, as I read Paul, it's like it's God and then Paul and then us. It's pretty hierarchical. It reminds me of Bill Gothard. You know, the chain of command. And we all know that we're supposed to repent of that. Do these words look like the words of a man who thinks anyone else has ever heard God speak to him? That anyone else has ever read the Bible? Anyone else has ever followed the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Anyone else has ever studied church history? Listen, brothers, don't listen to him. He says we're trying to make a good showing in the flesh. He's the one that is trying to make a good showing in the flesh. He's the one that's trying to impress you. Look how puffed up he is with his own self-importance. He says we're compelling you to be circumcised. You know very well we're not compelling anyone to do anything. Paul's the one who compels people to do things, all autocratic and all authoritarian. We have simply suggested that you finish your conversion by being circumcised. You know how much that will mean for our safety and your safety. You know that it will help the safety of our brothers and sisters back in the homeland in Jerusalem and all Judea. Paul says we want to avoid persecution. That's a lie and it infuriates us. You know the things that I have given up for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know that my mother will not speak to me anymore. And he accuses me of avoiding persecution. Who was it that loves you? 
He says that I'm just trying to boast in your flesh. Who was it that was there when your little baby died two months ago? I was the one. with. Where was Paul? Oh, he wasn't there, was he? Paul's a liar. Paul is a liar. There's an old saying, something to the effect that the problem here is that we don't understand each other. The problem here is we understand each other perfectly. And there will be no compromise. Remember how I said at the beginning that Paul rolled up his sleeves? The Apostle Paul is not a prissy shepherd, is he? The Apostle Paul has all the muck and all the gunk and all the pus from the sores of his flock covering him. And what he cares about is the cross of Jesus Christ. And he won't let go of it. You're right. He's a pit bull. He's got it in his jaw. He won't let go of it. He'll stoop to every tool he can use. He'll ridicule. He'll anathematize. And then he'll go for their motives and claim he knows what their motives are. He'll say that they want to avoid persecution, that they want to look good to other men. He'll say that they just want to brag about the flesh of their followers. And then you know what the Apostle Paul says? He says, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, I'm going to return to this. I'm not going to be done today. But here's an interesting thing. You've all heard that verse, right? But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What has it meant in the past whenever you've heard it? You want me to tell you? What it's always meant is that we need to just preach the basic gospel of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ taking upon himself the suffering that we owed God and our placing our faith in His death so that we might be saved. Christ taking the wrath of God that we might escape the wrath of God through the cross of Christ. Now, that is what He glories in, isn't it? Is it? When the Apostle Paul writes here, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, is He glorying in the shed blood of Jesus Christ? Yes, He is. Is He glorying in Jesus Christ, making Himself of no reputation, taking upon Himself of the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, humbling Himself to death, even the death on the cross? Is that what the Apostle Paul is glorying in? Absolutely. Is there anything else he's glorying in? Think hard. It's a trick question. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Give me your hearts. You know what the Apostle Paul is also goring in? Do you know what he's goring in? Look at your Bibles. We'll come back to this. But look at the very end of chapter 6. Those of you that don't have Bibles... Look on the wall. Did you notice how he says in verse 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. <laughs> I laugh when I'm delighted. Do you know what the Apostle Paul's saying there? He's saying he glories in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. What are the brand marks of Jesus? Remember the list the Apostle Paul had of how many times he'd been stoned and how many times he'd been shipwrecked and how many times he'd been left for dead 
how many times he'd been whipped, how many times he'd been imprisoned, how many times he'd been hungry. He bore in his body the brand marks of Jesus Christ. When he says that he is not going to boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that he has taken up his cross and he is following his Master. He is not about his reputation. He is not about having prissy hair that he sprayed uh, hairspray on. He is not about what television makes him. He doesn't take makeup before he goes on the set. The Apostle Paul is down in the trenches day and night with tears. And he has people who hate his guts. And they say he's a fool and he's a megalomaniac and he's arrogant and he's all these things. And the Apostle Paul glories in the cross. And every time he gets whipped and every time he gets put in prison and every time one more family leaves because the elders have rebuked them and they're too proud to stay, he glories in the cross. Do you understand this? The Apostle Paul has heard the Lord say, If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And so he glories. And you remember when he was on the road to Damascus, do you remember what the Lord Jesus said to him? Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Do you know what this means? This means that when you are persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself is on the cross suffering. It's not you. When your family casts you out, you have the glory of your Savior, the dignity of God. Do you understand this? We don't need a large church, we don't need the trim, we don't need circumcision, we don't need Rome. We don't need to get along. Can't we all get along? We only need one thing. And what is it? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you don't bear the cross in your life, if you can't point me to places where you silently and with faith are suffering for Jesus Christ, you don't glory in the cross no matter how you can explain the substitutionary atonement. I don't care how well you can do the four spiritual laws. I don't care how many times you've signed to the glory of God on your thesis and on your papers. It doesn't mean rip. If you don't suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ, you do not glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. And you are not a confessor no matter how much you profess Jesus Christ. And you say, well, by God's grace, we live in a country today where you no longer have to suffer for the Gospel. And I say, then we live in a Christless and a crossless day. And as the evangelical church grows and grows and the best sellers puff and puff, and I sit at my in-laws' tables listening to the new video game of Left Behind that they have licensed... You glory in the cross. You say, yes, Jesus alone. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And I say how? Show me. Show me. Show me. And you say to me, Show me. And I say, good job. Something about my motives, eh? Something about my character? Something about whether there's any synchronicity between what I say and what I do? What's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander? Yep. Yep. If you don't see me suffering for the Gospel, spit me out of your mouth. 
And if you don't see your elders, if you don't see the older women of this church making decisions which are contrary to their best interests because they glory in the cross, spit them out of your mouth. But if you see them doing them, love them the way I love them. (laughs) Why do you think the Apostle Paul kissed and hugged and cried with the Ephesian elders on the shore when he saw them for the last time? You know why it was? Because the Apostle Paul had gloried in the cross in Ephesus. Because he and they had been through a riot together where the name of Jesus Christ was honored by the people of God suffering for the cross. And so guess what? Here's a funny thing. They all loved each other. They all kissed each other. They all cried with each other. They went a long way just to be with Paul for a few minutes while he laid a guilt trip upon them about how there were going to be evil men that arose in the midst of them that were going to try to seduce some of them, and they better be on their guard for all the sheep and all the people God had placed under their care. In other words, they could not be pride and hammered and come along away from the Apostle Paul and he from them. You know why? Because together they gloried in the cross. You want to have good relationships with your wife? Glory in the cross. You want to have your children love you and respect you? Glory in the cross. You want to have your children love God? Glory in the cross. You want to have a church that's united? Behold how blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity? Glory in the cross! Stop! Being selfish. Stop asking when you come Sunday morning, what is it here that is for me? How can I benefit? You say, well, you're benefiting. You're up there. And I say, yeah, yeah, that's my job. And you say, yeah, but you know, you're a proud man. I say, yeah, yeah, that's one of the liabilities of having this job is all your sins are up there in public. But as I say, God could have had angels preach to you. All right, come on. This year, are you in it? Do you glory in the cross? Come on, come on. What does that mean for you? Does that mean giving up your own pet sins? Does that mean that you'll no longer visit Craigslist? Does that mean you'll no longer have sex with women that you're not married to? Does it mean you'll no longer nurse that little bottle of whiskey that's in your cupboard? Does it mean that you're going to begin to be bold in your classroom and what you say and how you say it? Does it mean you're going to begin to pray with your patients even though you've just gotten fired and lost your operating privileges because you pray with your patients? What does it mean for you to glory in the cross? You say, well, it means that I'm going to take the four spiritual laws to my next door neighbor. I say, God bless you and do it. But I'm asking you how you're taking up your cross and following the one who has preceded you. All right. We'll return next week or the week after that. Are you in it for the cross? Come on. Are you? Are you? Come on. Talk to me. Are you? It's not just black congregations that can talk to the preacher. Are you in it? Do you love the cross of Christ and will you take it up yourself? Come on. Will you? Don't say yes unless you mean it. You say, well, I don't really know if I mean it. And I say, yeah, faint heart ne'er won a fair maiden. I'll explain later. (laughs) Carol Canfield is confused. It's a little saying I learned when I first started putting in the golf game. Let's stand. I'll give you the benediction.